0: Start in Acts chapter two, verses sixteen and seventeen. I'll carry on with the theme from last Sunday, and that theme was hope. And I heard hope mentioned in prayer this morning a few times. I heard that the Lord does have a future for His people. Acts chapter two. Before I read it, I'm going to ask a simple question. How many believe we're in the last days? And what do you think I mean when I ask you the question, are you in the last days? Typically, a lot of people think of the last days as referring to that last generation, last 30, maybe 40 years that exist in the world scene before Jesus comes again. And those last few decades are referred to as the last days. And people like to follow the news and read the paper, watch the news report and television and so forth. Oh, it's really getting bad. The world's never been this bad before. And we must be living in the last days because the world is getting so bad. I actually would challenge that. And I, and I personally, I would think... Uh, no, the world has seen worse days than we're seeing. We live a very sheltered existence. And I don't think you wanted to live a thousand years ago because it was much worse then than it is now. No, the world has been this bad before. It's even been worse. But that doesn't help us necessarily deal with the present. But when are the last days supposed to happen? Acts chapter 2 Verses 16 and 17, when Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, he says, But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men will see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. That was, folks, was 2,000 years ago. And Peter, preaching on the day of Pentecost, quoting the prophet Joel, when, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, and people began to speak in other tongues, and dreams and visions were given, and so forth, and when the Holy Spirit was poured upon, upon all flesh, Peter makes the announcement, The last days have arrived. So, according to Peter, the last days have been around for the last almost 2,000 years. That phrase, last days, does not refer exclusively to the last few decades before Jesus comes again. But according to Peter, the last days began at the first coming of Jesus. Depends where you live to what you call last. Because if you lived in the Old Testament, and the first coming of Jesus was still in your future, you look forward to the first coming of Jesus as the last days. That makes sense? Depends where you live in history. And so Peter says the last days have arrived. First Timothy chapter 4 verse 1, Paul the Apostle said he lived in the last days because he made this statement. He says, now the Spirit is speaking very plainly, very expressly, that in the last times... There shall, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and so forth. When John wrote, and this was a long time ago for us, some almost 2,000 years ago, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18, he makes this announcement. He says, little children, we're in the last time. As you have heard that the Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. John said that 19 centuries ago. He said he was living in the last days. As a matter of fact, there's a variety of scriptures that refer to the coming, the first coming of Jesus, his birth, his incarnation, his life upon the earth, his preaching about the kingdom, his death, his burial, his resurrection. There's plenty of scriptures that refer to those things happening in the last days. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 is an example Where the writer says, God who at sundry times and in divers manners has spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. But has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Which means that when God gave the world the gift of his son, the last days had arrived on the earth. There's plenty of scriptures. 1 Peter 1 verse 20 definitely refers to the first coming of Jesus as the last days. And so, when we say last days, we're not thinking only of the second coming of Jesus. We have to think of the first coming of Jesus, and every day in between that, until the second coming of Jesus. All of that 2,000 years is referred to in Scripture as the last days. Now, the Bible does speak of a last day, singular. You find that many times in the New Testament, several times in the Gospel of John chapter 6, where Jesus would repeatedly say, he that believes in me, I will raise him up at the last day. Martha said to Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus in John chapter 11, I know that he will be raised at the last day. In John 12:48, he says, at the last day, there will be one that will judge. So, there are the last days, plural, but there is the last day. And that last day is the appearing of Jesus, the resurrection of our bodies, and the judgment all happens at that last day. But according to our, our scriptures, what we have here is that the last days began at the first coming of Jesus. And they will end at the, what we call the second coming... But if you hear me preach long enough, I purposely avoid the term second coming because I rather prefer the biblical term, the appearing of Christ. And there's a reason it's called his appearing, because everybody will see him for who he is. The first time he came, he was not recognizable. He looked like any other man. But when he comes again, nobody, and I mean nobody, will be mistaken as to his identity. He will come and he will appear in all of his glory. And everybody will see it and everybody will know it. And so I want to give you a little definition here of what the word last means. It's a word that the New Testament uses very frequently. But I want to give you a definition of what the word means. It comes from the Greek word eschatos. Eschatos. And if you were to go to a Bible school and and study a a topic called eschatology, then you are be studying last days. And depending on what Bible school you went to, you would believe that, oh, there's a a tribulation period, there's an antichrist, there's a false prophet, and you look for specific signs... And you're going to get raptured before the tribulation. No, you're going to get raptured in the middle. No, you might get raptured at the end. Maybe there is no rapture because the rapture and the second coming are all the one and the same thing. Maybe you're premillennial dispensation. Maybe you're historic dispensational premillennial. Maybe you're postmillennial. Maybe you're all millennial. And none of you have a clue what I'm talking about, right? That's right. No thoughts so much. I mean, but there's but but this topic called eschatology is is, is how everything is going to end at the last days. The word eschatos, translated in your Bible as last, is a frequent word. It happens a lot in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, for instance. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is where Paul tells you what the gospel is and how the end of the gospel is. And as you work your way through 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Jesus comes back, there's the resurrection of all the believers, and you get to the end of the story and that word last appears many times in that chapter he would say in verse 8 and last of all he was seen by me and you would read that the last enemy to be destroyed is death and you would read that christ was the last adam and you would hear about the last trumpet i mean that word last is a lot in 1st corinthians chapter 15 because paul is going to show you how all history is going to finish At the very end. But when we use the word last, and stick with me on this for a couple of minutes, because we got to get the definition of this accurate. The definition of this Greek word eschatos, which is translated last, does not simply mean the end in the sense of chronology, as if it's the last in a list of things that have to take place. Or if I'm looking for your house and I don't know where you live, you might give me instructions and you say, my house is the last one at the end of the street on the right side. Well, that tells me the location, but that doesn't give me the definition of what this word last means. What the word eschatos means is that that which is at the very end is a goal that is being reached. A goal that is being reached. It means the thing at the very end is the product of forces that are already in motion. It's just not a future event, but rather it is a consummation of things already happening. Something is already in process, and what is the end of that process? What is the final event? Now, the fact is this, that history is moving towards an end. Amen. And I don't care what you see on the news or what you read in the paper or how out of control you think this world might be. I want to say emphatically, this world is not out of control. God is in control. No matter what you read. God is in control. And he is moving history along. And he is shaping history towards a specific goal. Everything that God does in history is shaping events to lead to a final conclusion. That's what this word eschatos means. It means that God is shaping your present events towards a specific end, a specific goal. And I know there are times... That we have struggles with this, that we dealt with this, and that we're so preoccupied with the present, we cry out to God. Sometimes it doesn't even seem as listening. Sometimes it seems so, so difficult and so hard. But the fact is this, whether you feel it or you don't feel it, God is in control. Amen. And God is in charge of history, and he is moving history towards a definite conclusion. And that conclusion is not unrelated to what's happening now. But God takes the present, shapes it, and moves it towards the conclusion. One of my favorite verses, Ephesians 3.11, it says, According to the eternal purpose, which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is an eternal purpose. I like Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10 that says this very plainly. It says that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, he may gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. There is a fullness of time to come when God is going to gather everything together in Christ. History is moving towards a goal. The concept may be similar to our English word "escalate." Things are escalating. Now, when I say that, what do you what goes through your head? Things are escalating. In other words, they're building up and building up and building up to a conclusion. History is escalating to the appearing of Jesus Christ. Amen. History is moving, escalating, building up to the appearing. Of Jesus Christ. Just how this word is explained is very um, uh, easily seen in the book of Proverbs. I'll just give you some examples how this word is used in the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint, a Greek translation. And for instance, you have in Proverbs chapter 5, verses 3, 4, verse 11, you have a warning not to get yourself involved with a strange woman. Now, the reason the writer of Proverbs says, don't get yourself involved with some strange woman, is because if you start down that road, do you realize where you will end up? <laughs> you know? So, don't, don't you be embracing strange women. If you start down that road, do you realize what conclusion it will take you to? What the end of it. What the eschatos of it is. In Proverbs chapter 23 verses 31 to 32. The same principle is about the, the glass of wine. When you see it sparkling nice and red in that cup. And you put it in. It tastes so sweet and smooth to go down. It says if you start down that road. Do you understand what the end of that is going to be? Because it's going to produce force, uh, unleash forces in you. That are just going to move you along. And move you along and carry you along, and do you understand the end result to which it's going to carry you? What the eschatos of that is going to be. The Proverbs would continue to say in, in passages like chapter twenty three, eighteen, chapter twenty four, fourteen, that if you take wisdom into your life, do you realize where wisdom will take you? It's going to be a good end if you take wisdom into your life. No, the latter end. So the end is the result of things that are already happening. It's not disconnected. This concept is easy to follow if I give you a negative illustration. Imagine somebody has got a drug habit. Is that going to be the end of the matter? No, to support that drug habit, he has to steal. It's getting worse. So, once he gets involved in theft to support his drug habit, is that going to be the end of the matter? No, because he gets caught and he's sentenced to prison. And what happens is problems seem to give birth to bigger problems. Anybody ever notice that? Problems seem to give birth to bigger problems. And you start asking yourself this question, can this get any worse? Well, it can, because he's in jail, his marriage is going to fall apart, and he ends up with a divorce. Can it get any worse? Is that the end of the matter? Well, no, because his marriage falls apart, his children become estranged from him, and they become delinquent. Is that the end of the matter? You see what I'm trying to say? It just one thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And you get so frustrated at the process because it seems one problem gives birth to another problem, gives birth to another problem. It goes on, it escalates, and you get worried about it, and you're scared about it because it's out of control. You start pulling your hair out, and you ask the question, Where is all this going to end? In other words, if you use the Greek language, you ask the question, what is the eschatos of this? Where is this leading to? You can use the same principle with a positive illustration. Whoever enrolled in a university who never had a goal of graduating? Do we have professional students, lifetime students? Or when you get involved in university, do you not have with, in front of you, the goal of graduation? Isn't your study supposed to lead to a graduation? Is that not correct? Whoever heard uh, of getting engaged to be married, and you remain engaged for your whole life and actually never get married? Does that make any sense? Does that make any sense? Now, the idea of that engagement and marriage is very biblical because in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, what we have here is that our experience of salvation with Christ is that we have been betrothed to him or espoused to him. When you were born again, you got engaged. Now, the biblical concept is espoused or betrothed, but it's not the word engaged but it's the same principle to you and me except it's far more binding than our engagement but you get engaged to be to to be wedded to Christ now whoever heard of somebody who was really excited about getting engaged. you got this engagement ring on your finger. You're proud of it. You want to show the whole world this engagement ring because somebody loves you. Somebody's in covenant with you. And you're just waiting for the future day. Oh, let me tell you about my future. Whoever heard of somebody who wasn't bursting at the seams after they got engaged and wants the whole world to know about it? You and I are engaged to Christ, and the gift of the Holy Spirit is the engagement ring, folks. The gift of the Holy Spirit is the engagement ring. And we don't tell anybody about how excited we are. Who ever heard of a bride who tries to keep it a secret? Do we understand our future? Do you understand? Do we understand our destiny? If a girl gets engaged to be married, I'll guarantee she wakes up every morning with that thought in her head. If she doesn't, I would suggest that she not get married. You wake up every morning with that thought in your head. You dream about it. You've got these big dreams of what the wedding's going to be like and what married life is going to be like. You invest your heart. You invest your emotions in it. You even plan your whole life according to your future. You you budget for it. You You start making decisions not based upon your present, but you make decisions based upon what your future is going to be. In other words, the future which is promised to you Controls everything about your life even now. The engagement leads to the wedding. Who ever heard of a believer being saved and spirit filled but not mindful of and not eager for the appearing of Jesus? However, We have been taught in such a way that the second coming of Jesus is unrelated to the first coming of Jesus as if they are two separate topics entirely. I'm here to tell you they are not two separate topics. One begins the process, one ends the the process. It's all one event. And we've got to learn to think in those terms. Or otherwise, you spend the rest of your life putting in time instead of preparing for the day. You just put in time when you need to be rehearsing for the resurrection. You follow what I'm saying here? Does our future reality grip us? I have made no bones about saying I'm Pentecostal. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I want the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I want the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I want the demonstration of the Holy Spirit. I want the power of the Holy Spirit. And you have, we need to understand that the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the understanding of the Holy Spirit is very, very dependent upon what you believe your hope is. Because the work of the Holy Spirit is to get you to the last day. If you want to walk in the Spirit, you have to walk the same direction the Holy Spirit is walking. Is that not correct? If the Holy Spirit is moving this direction, your life can't be going the other way. You have to consciously make a decision to walk according to the same goal to which the Holy Spirit is working. And what is that goal? That goal is the appearing of Jesus. How many are hungry for his presence? How many want to see him? Anybody? How many want to see him? How many want the veil to be removed? How many want to see him in all of his splendor, in all of his glory? You see, sometimes in life, when life gets hard, and when people do groan under burdens, especially uh, physical sickness when people are elderly, there's a yearning, I just want to go home. I just want to go home. That's admirable, because to be home with the Lord, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord, is far better than this world. But, and here's a but, but that's not the end of the story. The Bible really doesn't say a whole lot about what is called the intermediate state. We have a few clues here and there in Scripture to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, which is far better than this world. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is when Jesus comes back and you get a resurrected body. Amen. That's the end of the story. When you and not are just entering into the presence of the Lord, but the end of the story is glory. Have you ever told you that? The end of the story is glory, and you're going to get a new body glorified. Please, come quickly. <laughs> you know, uh, but at the end of the story, is we can enter into his glory with him, with his, our resurrected bodies. So, the first coming is the betrothal to Christ. The second coming is the wedding. Obviously, these two are related to each other. You can't understand one apart from the other. The first coming of Jesus, his birth, his incarnation, his preaching about the kingdom starts the process. His appearing in glory finishes the process. One leads to another. Now, there are multiple passages of scripture. and I want to challenge you to learn to read your Bible in seeing the first coming leads to the second coming that the second coming is the result of things already happening the first coming plus the activity of the holy spirit leads to his appearing there are plenty of scriptures i'll just give you a few i mean there are literally dozens of them in your new testament that speak about both comings in the same breath 1 corinthians 11 as as we you know every time we do the lord's table this is often read 11:26 says you do show the lord's death Till he comes. First coming, second coming, all in the same sentence. There, First Peter one three, we have been born again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The first coming, Jesus is raised from the dead. We believe on him. We're born again. Everybody who is born again now has a hope that the world doesn't have. And what is that hope? The appearing of Jesus. Aren't you glad you're born again and you have a hope? Because those who are not born again have no hope, and to them, this world is out of control and they don't know to handle it. But to you and I who have a hope, there is a future. Amen. There is a future. First Peter one verse eleven beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Acts one eleven, this same Jesus, the angel said, This same Jesus, which was taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner. Hebrews nine twenty eight, I like this one. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. That's the first coming. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Both comings of the Lord are are mentioned there. As I said, there are absolutely multitudes of scriptures that put those two comings together. But we have seemed to have been taught in such a way about the last days that it's a topic of its own unrelated to the first coming of Jesus. We need to correct that way of thinking. If we want the fullness of the Spirit, we have to understand the process between the first coming and the appearing of Jesus. As I read the New Testament, there's absolutely no doubt that the writers of the New Testament preached a gospel that was a message of a kingdom. Amen. He is, it's the message of the kingdom. And that kingdom was inaugurated at the first coming of Jesus. He taught about it. He preached it. He spoke parables about it. He talked about the ethics of the kingdom. He demonstrated the kingdom by healing the sick and casting out demons. He preached to the poor that the first coming of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection inaugurated the kingdom. And it will come to its eschatos, its conclusion at his appearing. And it's building and building and building through the process of time. One of the clearest verses of scripture is Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. Titus 2, verses 11 to 13. Where you have the first coming of Jesus, leading you to the appearing of Jesus, and then between the two comings, how you're supposed to live. Listen to the scripture. It says, For the grace of God... That brings salvation has appeared to all men. Past tense. In the present tense it teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust. We should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world. As we are looking for that blessed hope. The future. And the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. The coming of the Lord is referred to as the blessed hope. If you've experienced his grace, you are in possession of a blessed hope. And because you have the hope in front of you, and you've already experienced his grace, in between the two comings, it teaches you how to live. You have to keep yourself for that day. It's the blessed hope. Every believer who has been made a partaker of the Holy Spirit has tasted the powers of the world to come. Hebrews chapter 6 verses 4 and 5. If we can just get this picture of the appearing of the Lord. And I want to teach sometime in the future of what that day means to us here. And what does it mean to be glorified? What does it mean to have your reward? What does it mean to get to the end of the story? What does it mean for the process to be finished in your life? What does it mean to get a resurrected body? What does it mean to be delivered from the very principle of sin? What does it mean to have life? What does it mean to be glorified? Our future. I mean, the New Testament speaks about that so much... But in the way we think, we've car par, car, um, what's the word I'm looking for? compartmentalized. That's it, and, and and it's put away over there as some great unknown. But I want to tell you, there's lots for us to discover. And it's, but it's not all unknown. The eye has not seen, the ear has not heard, nor has it entered the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. But the Holy Spirit has revealed it. And our experience of the Holy Spirit today is a foretaste. Of the reality. We've already been allowed to taste the reality in the gift of the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, with the, with the gifts of the Spirit, prophecies and praying for the sick and, and the authority of the kingdom. That is, God's allowing you to taste, to experience in a small degree that day. I don't know about you, but if I have a, a nacho chip, I want more. I bet you, you can't have just one. <laughs> How many know when you begin to taste something, you just got to have more? Isn't that not right? Mm-hmm. Have you tasted the powers of the world to come? Have you experienced His love? You just want more. And you know where the more is in the cupboard. <laughs> and you just keep on making visits there. <laughs> you know? And when you run out, you buy more, you know. <laughs> you know where it is. You know, you, We know where the more is. It's the appearing of Jesus. And you just keep going there. 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 Until that day. You just want more. Until that day happens, you have to be satisfied with being unsatisfied. You just, we're hungry... For the presence of the Lord. Doesn't the scripture end with this cry? How many know what the last cry of the Bible is? Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. As I read my Bible, my New Testament, I am convinced that Peter, James, and John, and Paul, and all the others preach the gospel very differently than we do. I'm convinced of it. I am thoroughly convinced that they preach the gospel very differently than what we're accustomed to. Because if you were converted under Paul's ministry, you were hungry for the Lord's appearing. That when you got saved listening to the preaching of Paul, the apostle, you realize that something was birthed in you and the rest of your life is not just a waiting game until you die. So you can go to heaven as if you got the ticket and there's nothing more. The rest of your life was yearning and hungering and growing and developing because now that you were born again, you have a hope and you do everything in your life to get yourself ready for that final hope. You're engaged to be married and you spend the rest of your life getting ready for your wedding. I am convinced. That's how they preached it. In the New Testament. If you doubt it, I, I challenge you to read all of 1 Thessalonians and all of 2 Thessalonians. And you see that those converts yearned for the coming of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 1 9 and 10. Listen to what it says about converts who were only six months old in the Lord. Chapter 1, 9 and 10 says, How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. Listen to chapter 2 and verse 19. What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Listen to chapter 3 and verse 13. So that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. How about the the familiar chapter 4, verses 14 to 17. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. You know the passage. He descends with a shout, the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet, the dead in Christ will rise first. We're caught up together in the clouds with the Lord. So shall we ever be with the Lord. They were hungry for that. Chapter 5, verse 23. It says... um, so your whole spirit, soul, and body would be preserved or kept blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. How about Second Thessalonians 1.10? I like this one. When he shall come to be glorified in the saints. Boy, those early believers had a lofty goal, didn't they? They were just not happy with their sins being forgiven and occupying time and somehow putting in time and trying to be a good person the rest of your life. They were occupied with the concept that God had begun something in them and it's going to end in glory. It's going to end with the Lord's appearing and He's coming to be glorified In his saints. 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 13 and 14. Where Paul says. God called you by our gospel. To the obtaining of the glory. Of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the process. In between the calling and the receiving. There is this something. Someone called the Holy Spirit. That sanctifies you. And changes you. And gets you ready for your wedding. Just like any bride has to prepare herself. For that day. Folks, we're not just putting in time. You're getting married. You rehearse for that day. That kind of thinking is all through the New Testament. Our problem is that a lot of preaching about the last days has been so negative and so fearful people put on these seminars the book of revelation seems to get a crowd let's do a a week long thing about the book of revelation well everybody wants to come up because they want to get the latest theory out there who the antichrist is and all of that I haven't got the time of day for that I'd rather have a revelation of Jesus than a revelation of an antichrist I haven't got time for that kind of stuff. I really, really don't. Because this has been taught, the Lord's coming has been taught in such a way as an escape. The world's getting bad. Have you seen the news lately? Have you seen the threat of ISIS around there? Have you seen all of this stuff out there? What's the world coming to? Oh Jesus, come get me before it gets really bad. And we want a rapture to get us out of the world just so we don't have to deal with all the evil that is there. What a terrible way to preach about the Lord's coming. That's awful. I'm not escaping. I'm inheriting Glory. Amen. I'm not escaping. He's going to be glorified in his saints. It's vindication day, not escape day. This theme of being glorified, glory at the end of the story, in the New Testament is so frequent, I wonder how we miss it. How do we deal with the pressures? Yes, this is an evil world. And yes, the Christians do suffer in this world. And yes, there is persecution. But when you know what the end of the story is, you'll learn this. Paul says in Romans 8, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. So I need a little trial to teach me to die to myself. It's worth it. So I need some some persecution in my life to help me straighten out some attitudes. It's worth it. All what we go through in preparation, if that preparation involves some persecution, if it involves some sufferings, we don't want an escape mentality. We want a preparation mentality. Amen. We want a preparation mentality. And when we get to the end, we're going to make this discovery that was nothing compared to what we receive. Amen. Second Corinthians 4, 17, 18 says the same thing. For our light affliction. Yeah, Paul, light beating, shipwrecks, stonings, dragged out of the city is dead, day and night in the deep, sure. Our light. How could he call that stuff light? Our light affliction was just, just for a moment works on our behalf towards a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. All that shipwreck and stonings and being dragged out of the city of dead, that's light stuff compared to the heaviness of the glory. First Peter 5.10, The God of all grace, who has called you unto eternal glory... After you suffered a little while, he says he will restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. The attitude in the New Testament is one of eager expectation. You're full of anticipation. You can hardly wait for that day to arrive. Let me tell you a little bit about that day. It's the day when Jesus receives the fullness of his Father's inheritance. It's the day that God vindicates the saints for all their suffering at the hands of this world. It's the day when the saints are glorified and rewarded. It's the day when faith will give way to sight and all our hopes are fully realized. It's the day when God puts the whole world back to rights. It's the day I get this resurrection body, immortal and incorruptible. It's the day when both all of ours and the Lord's enemies are vanquished. Don't you want it? Don't you yearn for it? Aren't you hungry for it? You see, in the Old Testament, I read many times in the Scriptures how the psalmist thirsted for the presence of God. How they longed. To see God's power and glory. I like Psalm 63. Where David is running from his son Absalom. And he's out of Jerusalem. He's away from the temple. He's away from Mount Zion. And he's out there in the wilderness. And he cries out and he says. Oh God. You are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. As in a dry and a thirsty land where there is no water. Or Psalm 84 too, where the psalmist says, My soul longs, yea, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out to the living God. If in the Old Testament, prior to the first coming of Jesus, they had seen the presence of God on Mount Zion there, and they were hungry for it, Then I ask the question, how much more for we who are saved, who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who have received the grace of God, where the process has actually begun in us with a new birth. How much more should we not just be longing and yearning, and craving, and desiring, with everything within us, that last day to come. And while we're waiting for the last day, we don't put in time, but instead of putting in time, just twilling our thumbs, waiting for Jesus, we want the fullness of all that we could possibly experience now to get us there. Is that not right? Is there not a yearning, a thirsting, and a craving for the presence of God after all, the ends of the world have already begun. Jesus judged it at the cross. It's already begun, folks. The process has begun. And you're saved, and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, and He's moving you to the wedding, to the conclusion, the end of the story. These yearnings can be so deep within us. Romans chapter 8.23 they describes as groanings. Have you ever just yearned to be free from something? Have you? If you have a sickness, have you ever just yearned with everything within you to be free of it? Have you ever just yearned to get rid of your tiredness? Have you just yearned to be set free? It can be so deep in us that is described as groanings. The New Testament uses words like watching. The New Testament uses the words they that love his appearing. The New Testament says looking for and hasting to the coming of the Lord Jesus. In Hebrews 11, they sought. In Hebrews 11, they desired. All these words express an eager expectation. If I could put it into English, it means you're there's something off there in the distance and you want to see it. It's really, really far out there, but you know it's there. And so you, you, you stand on your toes and you stretch your neck and you want a better glimpse of what you know you're going to. You're eager, you're desirous, you're hungry for it. I ask you the question, what bride-to-be does not think of her wedding? I asked you this last Sunday. What child does not think of Christmas? They want to see what's under that tree. They let you know about it all the time, don't they? They're eager. They're eager. They're eager. You and I are eager for the fullness. We're not putting in time. But let's live with expectation, eagerness, anticipation. Every bride to be will keep herself pure for her husband to be. We keep ourselves unspotted from this world to keep ourselves pure. For our wedding day. At the appearing of the Lord. Did you know that, and I'm just about finished here, even creation itself is groaning with anticipation. Did you know that this earth is tied with man? The destiny of this earth is tied with the destiny of man. And according to Romans chapter 8 and Paul's teaching, is that when man fell into sin, all of creation... Fell into corruption with him. Is that not correct? Is that what I say in Romans chapter eight? All the creation fell into corruption with him. And this world is not right. This earth is not right. It right now it has earthquakes, it has famines, it has storms, it has all sorts of things that are out, are just not right. But according to Romans chapter 8, all of this activity in the earth is like the whole earth is groaning as well. The earth itself wants to be delivered from the bondage of corruption. I've got news for you. At the end of the story, we just don't go to heaven to be with the Lord. But what happens is the Lord comes back and He brings heaven the earth and all of heavens and all the earth is recreated. And all creation is just waiting for that day to be released from that bondage of corruption. And when man is glorified, then the earth says, I'm glorified too. <laughs> And the whole heavens and the whole earth is renovated according to the Spirit of God, according to the glory of God. Every time there's an earthquake, the earth is groaning. Every time there's a storm, the earth is groaning. It's desiring to be set free. But the problem is this, it won't be set free until the coming of Jesus. Until the coming of Jesus. Until that day, the Holy Spirit has been given to you and me. The Holy Spirit has begun the good work. All of eternity is under the domain of the Holy Spirit. But I've already received the Holy Spirit before that day. And now what the Holy Spirit's going to do is move me forward and forward and forward and change me, change the way I think, change my behavior, change my thought patterns, change my character, give me gifts, open my eyes to see the scripture, helps me to to teach me to pray, Uh, leads me and guides me and forms the character of Jesus in me. And the Holy Spirit is doing all this work because what He's doing is He's preparing me for the eschatos, getting me ready for that day of when He comes to be glorified in the saints. We need the Holy Spirit. And He yearns for that day, and He's moving all of history towards that day. But the Holy Spirit is in me. According to Romans 8, verse 23, then what happens? Because the Holy Spirit is yearning for that day, moving towards that day, the Holy Spirit in me, causes me to groan as well. Have you ever prayed? Have you ever been under such burden sometimes that you don't know how to pray? And all you can get out of these words is, Oh God. Have you had that experience? You don't even know how to say it. You don't know how to articulate it. You don't know how to express it. But you know what? Your prayers, your groans, God knows what they mean. And we groan we travail. We're so hungry. We just want to be free from the past. And we want the fullness of our future. And we're just so hungry. And we groan within ourselves. So, the last day is the eschatos. That's your future. That's where you're headed. That's where you're going. We're not just putting in time. We're people of the future. And thank God that in the midst of this world that's in turmoil, you and I have a hope. Amen. The world doesn't have it. They're confused, aren't they? The world doesn't have the hope. The world to them is falling apart. But I just happen to know who's in control. And I have a future. Even so, come, Lord Jesus.